Seth, I'll say it again. We're back, baby. Are you ready for our first full episode back? I am ready. I have been dying to ask you a certain question for some time now. (laughs) What would you do in this particular situation? Would you rather be cursed with being an amazing speaker, but no one could ever understand you? Or an amazing musician, but everyone thought you were terrible? So in both counts, by like objective measures, you are incredible at the thing. But you're either not understood or actively mocked for being <laughs> terrible. I think I'm going to go with being an excellent musician. But people just think I'm bad. Only because I think that being a, a great speaker, but like people not listening to you or being confused by what you say or falling asleep or ignoring you like that sounds terrible like i feel like that that would apply more often but if i was like a musician i could still like jam at my at my house like in my garage like like but your neighbors would like call the cops just like what's all this noise coming from seth's house (laughs) truthfully i have no idea what my answer to this question is because both of them sound really, really bad. I think I'd, I think for similar reasons, though, I'd probably go with musician. Just because then at least... like I feel like being an amazing speaker relies on... You know, communication relies on some form of recipient, right? We might think otherwise in the era of Twitter. But, you know, hmm. you don't just hmm. send communication out without context, without a recipient. That just feels more frustrating. And you're right, like, you could still at least enjoy your own music. Like, you might not be able to have anyone around you while you do it, but presumably, presumably that would work. Yeah, I'm with you. Like, you could still jam. That'd be fun. See, it's been a while, but still, we have these would-you-rather questions, and we still almost always agree. (laughs) (laughs) True. So So, why don't you go ahead and get us back into the scripture with today's passage. I would love that. This is Matthew 11, verses 7 through 19. This week, we're coming to you with the Common English Bible. When John's disciples had gone, Jesus spoke to the crowds about John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A stalk blowing in the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed up in refined clothes? Look, those who wear refined clothes are in royal palaces. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. He is the one of whom it is written. Look, I'm sending my messenger before you who will prepare your way before you. I assure you that no one who has ever been born is greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven is violently attacked as violent people seize it. All the prophets and the law prophesied until John came. If you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Let the person who has ears hear. To what will I compare this generation? It is like a child sitting in the marketplaces calling out to others. 
We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a funeral song and you didn't mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. Yet the human one came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a drunk, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved to be right by her works. Hmm. Well, thanks, Jonathan, for picking that. I'm already got me thinking. Good. Well, as you're thinking, hold on to those thoughts. What stands out to you? But in all honesty, what sticks out to me is the questions that Jesus asks right at the beginning. He's kind of asking the crowds, like, what did you want to see out there? Like, you didn't expect to see someone who's like ragged and rugged looking. It's so interesting to me the way that Jesus is like playing on their expectations Hmm. and the way that we see John subverting them. Like, even if they think that's a prophet, Jesus is like, yes, but he's even more. You know, this this passage of scripture comes immediately following Jesus' encounter with some disciples of John's. So some people who were following John the Baptist as Jesus' disciples were following him, listening to his teachings, traveling around with him. This encounter happened, as the scripture says in the beginning of chapter 11 in Matthew, Jesus was going around now visiting the disciples' hometowns. Yeah, so Jesus is making this effort. He has this encounter with John's disciples where they ask the question, essentially, like, John's been saying that someone's coming after him who's greater than him. That's you, right? Are you who you say you are? (laughs) And Jesus' response to them uh, prompts then the passage that we read here. And I think what stands out is as Jesus moves from talking to the disciples to talking to the crowd, he is essentially identifying how people followed John for a reason, right? They didn't go out to the wilderness to go out to the wilderness. They didn't go out there to find someone who was dressed really fancy and had all all of his ducks in a row or his maybe his locusts in a row. They They went out because they were compelled by his prophecy they were compelled by the ways that he was seeing and speaking about the world around him. Not necessarily predicting the future, but being prophetic in that he was speaking to the way things are. Mm-hmm. And so that moment then prompts Jesus to say this really interesting line in verse 11, where he says, I assure you that no one who has ever been born is greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Hmm. And it's this verse that plays on a lot of the reversals that we think about in Jesus's description of what the reign and realm of God is going to be like, right? A lot of ways things are turned upside down and inside out and outside in as well, that even one as admired, one as charismatic, one as honorable and recognizable as John is still the least in the reign and realm of God. And so Jesus then goes into this reflection on, you know, I feel like I hear a lot of baby boomers saying phrases like, to what will I compare this generation uh, today? (laughs) Totally. Uh, But... (laughs) 
<laughs> but honestly, I do the same thing with Gen Z now anyway. But it, but it's just these these reflections of John saying all these things, of Jesus certainly frustrated about saying all these things, and no one recognizing it. Playing the flute to no dance. Singing a funeral song to no mourning. And no matter what they do, John being out in the wild, he has a demon. Jesus eating with people who some people said he shouldn't be eating with. You know, he's a glutton and a drunk. (laughs) (laughs) But ultimately, Jesus says that wisdom's actions speak for themselves, right? Is it the passage concludes wisdom is proved to be right by her works so all these perceptions just like you were talking about all these expectations even if they are wrong even if they are responded to with violence they're still subverted god's reality is still demonstrated by the actions of the faithful and the called regardless of what other faithful and other called may have expected God to do in that place. So I I went in a little faster than I anticipated, but how do you react to some of that? Yeah, this radical subversion of what we expect from God, I just think is the characteristic of all of God's work, maybe I should say. Like we expect God to do one thing, God surprises us in another way. We expect God to draw the lines about who's in and who's out one way. And then when we draw those lines, we always find God, you know, outside of our box. Whenever we whenever we expect, you know, one person to be the greatest, God shows us that there's someone else who's who's the least, who's actually greater. And we expect Jesus Christ to come in a way that's that's violent, like a ruler or a warrior. And Jesus comes like in this humble servant who's teaching and caring, who shows mm-hmm. compassion for everyone that he meets, right? Even if that compassion sometimes drives him to be a little angry but i think just dealing with god is almost always to expect the unexpected as cliche as it sounds to always know that god will show up some other way that we don't expect but that when that happens like it'll feel right and just like it'll make sense when it happens. Mm. I don't know. That's how I've been reading. Like, but wisdom is proved to be right by her works. It's like in some way you see it and you think, yeah, that's that's actually the way that it's supposed to be. That's the way that was right after all. Yeah. And sometimes it may take a little bit longer than others to. <laughs> Yeah. realize when True. it might be years right later right. <laughs> you're yeah. like oh that was right after all yeah well i think seth what you just described is a perfect transition to talking about defining a few things that are important to our conversation today and over the next few episodes 
And what you were talking about in particular reminds me of why the season of Advent is so moving and important to me. The season of Advent is all about anticipation, about expectancy. It's almost as if the earth and our communities and our very beings are coming to full term as we expect the birth of something new for God to be doing, something that shatters our expectations. And in the season, as we anticipate the coming of Christ in some way, even if we don't anticipate the literal arrival of Christ as described in Jesus's birth narratives, we still have to recognize that it's not only important that God came to be with us, that Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus Christ, took on flesh to fully understand what it meant to be human. Hmm. It's not just that it happened, it's also how it happened, that I'm sure we'll get into over the next the next few episodes <laughs> a little bit more. The other thing, though, that's really important for our conversation is taking a moment to define Christian nationalism. As you can imagine, especially these days, Christian nationalism takes on a number of different definitions. And honestly, a lot of it depends on who you're likely to vote for, (laughs) at least in the American context. But there are a few things that are really clear. Two in particular. One is that Christian nationalism has taken and institutionalized in some sort of political power tenets of the Christian faith or components of the Christian faith in a way that has essentially stamped a government's authority with the supposed seal of the church or the seal of Christianity or the seal of Christ. Now, it wasn't a nation in the same way we understand it today, but I think the earliest example of this would be the Roman Empire in the 4th century when Emperor Constantine, because of a supposed vision in battle, adopted the religion uh, led by the one who resisted and spoke against this empire's existence as the official religion of that same empire. And we can see, and, and part of the barriers to our understanding of who Christ was and what the early church was like is that we have, we today have not known a world where Christianity and political power are not unified. Hmm. When at its origins, Christianity was a resistance to dominant political power. Christian nationalism is at the root of some of the most heinous and evil movements of Earth's history, at least as far as we know. And the one that comes to mind in particular is the Christian nationalism at the root of the fascist regime in Nazi Germany, all done through the lens and under the guise of Christianity and Christ's teachings, all of it. I don't have enough time to go into <laughs> into yeah, that. Unfortunately, um, it's too much to go into there. I know. I, f- I feel like, especially trying to keep the things timely here. But what I will point listeners to, and maybe we can put this in the episode description, the link to this. There's a recent Pew Research Forum study about views on Christian nationalism. And again, there's a wide variety. There are people today who view the term positively, people who tie it to 
their perception that the United States was founded as a Christian nation or that a country should be guided by Christian principles or values. Uh, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene claims openly and proudly that she is a Christian nationalist. And part of that is probably to troll the liberals. But part of that is also this understanding that several hold that religious values, and in particular their religious values, should govern all things. Hmm. But it's astonishing to me how close this ideology is to what we often talk about as we articulate the reign and realm of God. It's not so dangerous an ideology because it is the opposite of what we believe to be true. At least we being you and I, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm, spe- <laughs> I'm speaking for you out of turn. It's not, it's not so dangerous because it's the direct opposite. It's so dangerous because it's so close and yet so destructive. And so there's this definition that one of the respondents to the Pew, Pew Forum survey shared hmm. that I think is helpful. I wouldn't classify it as a formal definition, but just something for us to think about. And they write, Christian nationalism is the belief that a nation should become a theocracy whose leaders all practice publicly the tenets of a single lobotomized interpretation of Christianity, a creed wielded by its government as a means of social control and manipulation. Religion and nation fuse in the minds of its leaders transcend all other concerns, then crush all opposition, foreign and domestic. Faith, fear, and rage reign as one. So, Seth, as you think about that and think about some of what we've discussed about our hopes for this series, how do you react to the... Those understandings, those ideas about Christian nationalism, is there anything else you'd add that feels important to describe? We can also do more defining as we go along in our series, too. The only thing that I would add is that I think this idea of Christian nationalism has been circulating in the background for much longer than we've then we've kind of had the words to describe it. And I should also say that it's been circulating kind of in the background before it had a lot of outright political power. Mm. And I think of the the really famous essay by, I believe his name's Robert Warrior, about the way that we read narratives in the Old Testament about conquest, and we see ourselves as the people doing the conquest Hmm. and that that shows me just the way that we read those and inevitably see ourselves in them says that this is actually like a much older phenomenon because that's like a pretty old essay at this point so again i think that this is this is older but as as it's grown in its political power, all of a sudden we're confronted with it in a way that we haven't been in the past. It's always been a problem. It's like when you're, when you have a little squeak in your car and you're like, what's that noise in the background? You're like, I should probably get that fixed. 
and you drive it and you drive it and you drive it and then one day you're like wow that little squeak is actually really loud now i should probably take this car in for service you're like yeah. now all of a sudden like we need it's been in the background and it probably should have been addri- addressed then now it's a big problem and we have no other option but to address it now yeah and again certainly more than we could ever cover in four weeks yeah absolutely yeah but i do think the message of advent and christmas stands so starkly in contrast with the message of christian nationalism because we see jesus arriving in ways that shatter our expectations right And for people who are more obsessed with political power, with controlling others, Hmm. than they are with a liberating experience of the Spirit of God, there are a lot of expectations that I think Advent really comes in conflict with. Here's a question for you. Do you think that this idea of a God who comes in the most unexpected ways is even compatible with an ideology that's fundamentally about control? Absolutely not. Okay. Same. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's, but it, it's worth explicitly stating it is hard work to control people, but it's much easier than learning to live in community with them Mm. where they are also learning how to be who they are made to be. Right. It is easy to not have conflict or to respond to conflict with an iron fist. It's easy to unleash weapons of war. It is harder to continue to insist on speaking words of peace. Jesus' arrival is not unexpected because it's the easy way. Jesus' arrival is unexpected because it's so damn vulnerable. And I think that's the other thing that stands out here is the reality of God's reign and realm has come to us in ways, in small bursts of flame that can be so easily extinguished that have somehow also set unbelievable spaces ablaze. And forgive me for using the fire metaphor, because I know that (laughs) in today's world that that's not the most, that's not, not the most thoughtful. I just think that the precursor to Christ's arrival being a dude eating locusts and honey and wearing camel's hair in the wilderness. Why did anyone go to listen to him? Yeah, it's just, it's just insane. But they did. Like, but they did. They did, yeah. For, for the one who is present at the foundation of the world to be born among us in a space that was crowded, that was probably loud, that smelled like manure... <laughs> in a time without the idea of sterilization or germ theory or all these things that we do to protect children when they're being born. Like there is such vulnerability in these unexpected spaces where God shows up Hmm. and vulnerability and Christian nationalism sure don't go together. Yeah. And just thinking about the ways that they don't go together. I mean, it's like, to me, it just seems like that whole worldview that wants to intertwine politics and religion is because people don't want to be vulnerable in 
in any aspect of their relationships, right? Like they don't want to be vulnerable with others in their interpersonal relationships. They don't want to be vulnerable politically. And I'm thinking about both other parties, but also other nations that we have that we have relationships with. But it's actually vulnerability that's like what is so scary. That's not only what we see Christ doing at the beginning of his life as being so vulnerable, but that's also what we will see post-Advent, right, in his entire ministry. Yeah, vulnerability is hard. <laughs> sure is. <laughs> that was deep. I just don't get the sense that we understand how good stories go. Hmm. And by that I mean, in every story that sets up a protagonist and an antagonist, the antagonist is almost always the one that is rigid, that is focused on control, that is focused on power. <laughs> and the ones that we connect with as the protagonists are often the ones that take risks to disrupt that way somehow. Hmm. Why would we want to opt to be the villain? Why have we opted to be the villain in so many ways that we've insisted that our belief st structure, and more specifically our interpretation of it, is the standard by which we can judge everyone and everything around us? I think we have a lot more to explore, don't you? Absolutely. I think I need to. I think I need to pray for us to help. Yeah, I think to so prepare too. us to prepare us for future conversations, <laughs> among much more. Let's pray. Holy wisdom. We are told that your actions speak for themselves. That you are proven right by your works. Help us to recognize your work among us throughout all time, so we can recognize you today. Give us grace to reject our own pursuits of power to instead pursue your love and justice for all. Mindful of the many names by which your children cry out to you from all over the world, I pray in the name of Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening, everyone. We know this podcast looks a little different now but we're so thankful that you're still here we'll be back next week for advent or next week we're back in matthew again but we're looking at jesus birth joseph's response to mary getting pregnant and kind of what that can teach us about christian nationalism so Jonathan, thanks for walking us through that story. Thanks for helping me tell it. Good. Well, as you're thinking, hold on to those thoughts. What stands out to you? Um, where's the Christian nationalism? <laughs> <laughs> we'll get there, I okay. promise. Okay. May have expected God to do in that place. Marshall's freaking out. Marshall agrees with me. Yeah, he does. That was his <laughs> amen. <laughs>